This is Mike Grell, and you're listening to Warlord Worlds. creations of writer and artist Mike Grell, including Warlord, John Sable, Star Slayer, Shaman's Tears, and Green Arrow. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth, and this is a fan podcast. We're not affiliated with Mike Grell, and the opinions expressed are just ours. We're doing this podcast simply because we enjoy reading and talking about the comics of Mike Grell. Today we're going to be talking about the origin of John Sable, as covered in issues 3 through 6, and then we'll be talking about Warlord issues 5 and 6 and Green Arrow issues 1 and 2. Then at the end of the episode, we'll be sharing stories about our amazing time at Cherokee Comic-Con with Mike Grell. If you enjoy the podcast, be sure to check out MikeGrell.com, which is his official site where he posts upcoming convention appearances as well as occasional news updates. If you ever get a chance to meet Mike Grell at a convention, we encourage you to do so. He is always friendly and very appreciative of his fans. He has a great selection of prints and does original drawings at reasonable prices. If you're unable to see Mike Grell at a convention, but would like to get an original drawing, you can contact Scott Kress of Catskill Comics, who is the official representative for Mike Grell for commissions. Scott is always friendly and helpful. If you are on Facebook, check out the Mike Grell page, expertly run by Gus Ceballos, who tells us we're mispronouncing his name, so we're waiting for corrective instructions from Gus so we can get it right in the future. In our first episode, we mentioned a few other podcasts that Mike Grell fans might enjoy, so we'll share those again this time in case you missed them. Professor Allen at the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network is a Mike Grell fan and occasionally covers Mike Grell comics on his many podcasts. Jeff Messer at the Geek Brain Popcast is another fan and has done a couple of interviews with Mike Grell on his show, and we'll talk more about Jeff and our coverage of Cherokee Comic Con later in the show. Flowers and Fishnets covers all things Black Canary and is one of the many fun podcasts from Ryan Daly. And the Emerald Archer podcast from Ed and Nick Moore is back from hiatus. Fans will enjoy their coverage of Green Arrow, both past and present. We'll put links to all of these resources in the show notes for those of you who want to check them out. Plus, we'd like to hear from you, so please drop us a note to let us know what you think of the show. We'll provide our email address and other ways to contact us at the end of the episode. And if you enjoy this show, please consider checking out our other podcast, which is Trekker Talk. It's a fan podcast devoted to the adventures of 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the pages of Trekker Comics by creator, writer, and artist Ron Randall. John Sable Freelance, number three, The Origin, part one, A Storm Over Eden, August 1983. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Colors, Janice Cohan. Letters, Peter Iroh. Editor, Mike Gold. Our issue opens in Eden Kendall's office. Mike Blackman is upset that she's been working to revise some drawings for the next book, but now B.B. Flem, a.k.a. John Sable, has vanished without a word. Mike doesn't understand John Sable. Eden tells her he has his reasons and then hands her a manuscript. Next, we see John Sable walking through the grasslands of Africa. A man recognizes him and says, What are you doing here? They'll be waiting for you. At home, Mike opens the manuscript and begins to read. 
It's the 1972 Munich Olympics. John Sable is walking down the street when he notices a beautiful blonde woman smelling violets at a street-side shop. He assumes she's German and tries to talk to her, but she laughs at his poor attempts and he realizes she speaks English and learns she is from Kenya. On a date that night, the two tell their stories to each other. Elise McKenna is an Olympic gymnast. She won the silver medal in 1968, but finished out of medal contention this year. At 21, she knows she'll be too old to compete again in 1976. John competed in the pentathlon, the most grueling test of the modern Olympics, including equestrian skills, fencing, marksmanship, swimming, and running. His fencing skills aren't yet up to peak, and he finished in fourth place. But as opposed to gymnastics, he could still refine his skills and compete again in 76. As the two walk back to the Olympic Village, they see men climbing over the fence at the Israeli quarters, but think it's only some athletes out for fun. But moments later, they hear gunfire. The tragedy of the Munich Olympics brings John and Elise closer together, and when she returns home, he decides to join her. The two open sable safaris on the borders of Botswana, Zambia, and Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. Soon, they welcome their first baby named Mark, and later a second baby named Heather, but find that the safari business isn't what they had hoped. But things look up when their friend Hal asks John to join them as a game control officer. On one of their assignments, they take down a group of poachers, and during the confrontation, John is forced to kill a man. One night, John is putting the children to sleep with a bedtime story about leprechauns who live in Central Park in New York. Later, Elise and the children are at home alone while John is on his latest assignment, when Elise sees armed men in the distance. She races inside to grab a rifle, and a gunfight ensues. John returns home that night to find his wife and children dead. There's a ton of story with many key plot points and details in this issue, and history packed into this very tragic first part of John Sable's origin story. The ominous and inevitable tone of the story is apparent from the beginning, yet the story remains compelling to the very end as John Sable burns his home to the ground as tears run down his face. This issue is filled with gorgeous vistas of the savanna of eastern Africa and magnificent drawings of many animals, including lions, elephants, and John's namesake, a sable, which we are told is not a Russian weasel, but rather a powerful muscular antelope with curving horns, which can be seen in the letters B and L in the John Sable logo from this period of time. Mike Grell even worked in a scene where John Sable pounds his chest and yells out like Tarzan. Mike Grell is a fan of many of the works of Edgar Rice Burroughs, and Tarzan in particular. I also love the two-page title page spread that actually incorporates art panels into the manuscript that Mike is reading. Very nice. John Sable Freelance, number four, The Origin, part two, Battle Mask, September 1983. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Colors by Janice Cohan. Letters by Peter Iroh. And editor Mike Gold. Our story opens with Mike Blackman continuing to read John Sable's manuscript when she picks up the phone and calls Eden Kendall to ask if the story is autobiographical. Eden has obviously asked the same question in the past, and she had a friend in the State Department check it out who confirmed that every word appeared to be true. John Sable is at the ruins of his burned home and is slumped over the graves of Elise and his children. He stares at his hands, which are covered in ashes. Then he reaches up to his face and draws a pattern of a battle mask on his face for the very first time. He begins to search for clues among the debris, including shell casings and boot prints. He can tell there were eight men, four were locals, three were European. All were using automatic weapons, except for the eighth man, who had a rare pistol and wore expensive riding boots. Sable knows he was the leader. Elise killed one and wounded another, so Sable has seven men to track down as he heads into the savannah. He finds where the men camp near a road. 
The leader and the wounded man were picked up by a truck while the other five continued on foot. He knows where they will have to cross the Zambezi River. Later, the members of the group are absentmindedly talking among themselves as they cross the river when a log swings down from above, impelling three of the men. One runs off to the jungle, while another turns and begins firing into the trees. A moment later, he falls from a bullet from Sable's gun. Sable then catches up to the other and knocks him unconscious. When he wakes, he finds that Sable has tied him to a tree above a nest of soldier ants. Sable wants information and quickly learns the wounded man is nicknamed Kraut because he wears an old German hat. He doesn't know the leader, only that is European and has white hair. Sable turns away and leaves the man to be slowly devoured by the soldier ants. Over the next six months, Sable has been unable to track down either of the remaining two men, but he has actively waged a one-man war against any and all poachers. His friends Hal and Jacob are concerned, and Jacob, who used to work with Sable when he had the safari business, tracks him into the jungle, but is unable to convince him to stop his rampage. Meanwhile, the white-haired man has thought of a plan to lure Sable into the open, and while it works, the results aren't what the white-haired man expected. Five men are taken out immediately, and two more shortly thereafter. Sable pins Kraut to the ground and demands the white-haired man's name, but before he can reveal it, the white-haired man appears and kills Kraut and wounds Sable. But as he moves in for the final kill, Sable is able to throw his knife, cutting off the man's finger and causing him to stumble back and fall into the river. Next, we are back in the present, and John Sable is back in Zimbabwe. He's talking to his friend Hal while painting on his battle mask. He has a job to finish. It's great to see the origin of the battle mask in this issue. It makes it so much more relevant to the character every time we see it now that we know the backstory. The panel layouts are great on this page, with four vertical panels showing the process of him putting the ash marks on his face and ending on one large circle panel with a close-up view of Sable. The background is red, and the last word on the page is rage, in red and orange. We have more great scenes of the African savanna and many great action scenes as John Sable expertly takes out the men responsible for killing his family. There are several sequences that rely only on the visual art to convey the story. The pacing is well done, and the dynamic figures really make an impact. There's no forgiveness or sympathy in this story, as Sable kills the men in very brutal ways. He uses fire, knives, guns and one poacher is actually gored with an elephant tusk that he has collected earlier that day. The confrontation at the end of the issue is really exciting. There are great views of cliffs and the waterfall, guns fire dramatically, and the knife looks three-dimensional, like it is going to come out of the page, which strengthens the startling view of the finger being sliced off. The fight doesn't go the way either Sable or his nemesis planned, but establishes a notable villain and makes us want to see the next time these two men face each other. John Sable Freelance Number 5, The Origin, Part 3, Kill Zone, written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Our story opens with Mike Blackman continuing to read John Sable's book, A Storm Over Eden. It's Rhodesia in 1979, and Sable is down on his luck when he is approached by Milo Jackson, who was on the rifle team and won the silver medal at the Munich Olympics. He's now a mercenary and is there to offer Sable a job. Two days, $10,000. A senator's son was part of a group flying across Africa in a hot air balloon when bad weather forced them down in a national park in an area controlled by gorillas. Milo Jackson is taking in a small team of six to rescue the group, and he wants someone with Sable's skills. Sable reluctantly agrees so that he can get his gun out of Hawk. The trip doesn't proceed as planned when a fighter plane sees their small convoy. 
The plane manages to take out both of the team's trucks and kills one of the mercenaries, but as it flies overhead, Sable unloads several shots into the plane, bringing it down in flames. The remaining five proceed on foot with their shares now increased to $12,000 each. As they finally come upon the park headquarters where the students are hiding, a group of guerrillas spot them, taking down two more of the mercenaries before they can get inside the building. Inside, they meet Ray Arnold, Cynthia Bishop, and Stephen Lauder, the son of the senator. Thanks to Sable's marksmanship, they can keep the guerrillas at a distance, but there's seemingly no way to escape. The balloon can only carry four, so it can't carry the remaining three mercenaries and the three students. Plus, the guerrillas would be able to see them inflating the balloon and would be able to shoot it before they could even get it off the ground. But Sable has a plan. Staying just out of range, he runs in a circle around the building, trailing gasoline behind him, and then ignites the ring into a blazing fire that obscures the gorilla's view. Then after inflating the balloon, Sable has each of the six passengers tie themselves to ropes, and then he cuts the heavy basket from the balloon, allowing it to lift off, carrying the six of them. They have little control, but they just need to get past the gorillas. However, it's still too heavy, and they aren't gaining enough altitude. Then Sable notices that Cynthia is carrying a heavy duffel bag that she refuses to drop. It turns out she's a courier for an illegal ivory cartel, and she's carrying drugs in the bag to make a payment, and she pulls out a gun on Sable to stop him from grabbing the bag. Sable kicks the gun from her hand, but gets his rope tangled around hers. Just then, Milo Jackson cuts one of the tangled ropes, and Cynthia falls to the ground as the balloon lifts high into the sky and over the gorillas. The issue ends with Sable asking Milo Jackson how he knew which one of the tangled ropes to cut, but Jackson just walks away without answering. This story opens with a page featuring a great drawing of a leopard in a tree, and it ends with a page showing John Sable in the jungle at night, setting up the next installment of the story. Between those two pages, we get several other great drawings, including a nice silhouette of Manhattan as Mike continues reading the manuscript. I appreciate the artistic approach to the background and the shaded back of Mike as she settles down to read more of the book. This story certainly shows how low John Sable has sunk in his depression. He's living like a vagrant, frequently drunk and occasionally in jail, but in spite of all that, he still has the skills he developed. The fight with the airplane looks terrific, with as many as four different views of the plane on a single page, and there was limited use of distinct line panels in this section, allowing the art and action to overlap and I liked the angled panels and rapid pace used for the battle with the gorillas. The final action sequence with the hot air balloon is terrific, a very imaginative situation that would look great on a big screen in a theater. The flames of the fire are so close to them, and there's so much tension as you wonder if it is the girl or Sable who will fall. The story also ties back nicely to the very first issue, when John Sable went up against Milo Jackson, who was trying to assassinate the president. John Sable Freelance Number 6, The Origin Part 4, A Deadly Shade of Violet, November 1983, written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Mike finishes reading John Sable's book recounting leading an anti-terrorist group through the jungle in 1980, but when he returns from the successful mission, he finds the leadership of his country has changed, and he is deported. Mike goes to see Eden Kendall because she wants to know the rest of the story. Eden tells her that when John returned to the U.S., he turned to the only other experience he had— which was being a writer for a sports magazine. So Sable wrote his autobiography and started sending it out to publishers, but continually received rejection letters. But when it finally came across Eden Kendall's desk, she saw something in it and called Sable in for a meeting. She told him she couldn't sell the main story, but she could sell the bedtime stories about leprechauns in Central Park that he told his kids and that he included in the book as side stories. 
Sable hated the idea of being a children's author, but he needed the money and finally agreed if he could use a pseudonym, and he came up with the name B.B. Flynn on the spot. The idea of being a children's author continued to irritate him, so he decided to turn his mercenary experience into a job and began advertising as a freelance bodyguard and investigator, but he couldn't find any work. Then he saw a news story about an escaped child slayer and began tracking the man. He found the hideout and gave the press an anonymous tip. When the press arrived, Sable paraded the man out in full view, and Sable gladly stopped to give a reporter an interview, creating quite a show in his battle mask and letting everyone watching know he was available for hire. The jobs came frequently afterwards, but then came the day that Eden Kendall called him. His children's book was selling well, and he needed to make an appearance at a book signing. He refused, but Eden pointed out there was a clause in his contract, so there was no getting out of it, and thus the disguise was created to go along with the name of B.B. Flynn. Back in Zimbabwe in the present, Sable has finally caught up to the white-haired man he's now identified as Reinhardt Pike. Sable scales the outside of the apartment building and waits on the balcony. Inside, Pike is walking around his penthouse apartment, which is decorated with the mounted heads of many endangered African animals. Sable crashes through the window. After a brief fight, Sable stabs Pike, who stumbles backward, falling over the railing of the stairs. Peering over the railing, we see that the poacher has been impaled on the horns of a sable antelope. Poetic justice indeed. The cover of this issue is a nice collage of images that relate back to prior issues. For example, along with John Sable, there's a sable antelope, his wife, the Olympic rings, and the poacher, Pike. It's a nice way to help the reader recall key story elements. The jungle and savanna scenes are well done, with good detail on the plants, and as always, the animals, like the elephants and lions, look terrific. Our origin story finally comes full circle as Sable catches up to the one remaining killer of his wife and children. However, as Pike taunts Sable in their final battle, there may be more to the story than Sable realizes. The way Sable begins both his writing career and his freelance investigating career is amusing and well told. It's nice to have a little levity rising to the surface following this very dark story. I like the sequence where he keeps checking his mailbox, then posting all of the rejection letters on a corkboard. And, when he meets his editor, Eden, he is dressed up in a dark suit, so he looks a bit like James Bond. A few pages later, when he is getting all of the adventurous freelance work, he strikes a pose that could be used for a movie poster. His gun is raised, and there's a montage of action poses and beautiful women overlaid on his black outfit. His name, Sable, is also splashed all around that figure. Nicely done. He looks so comfortable and pleased in that role, in contrast to a few pages later where he is hunched over signing books and looking miserable, surrounded by kids at the book signing event. As always, the art in the book is great. Mike Grell makes the story flow easily, both with the written word and visuals. The backgrounds and figures are always interesting, and the expressions on the characters are really effective. It's easy to get drawn into the story and to be motivated to find out what happens next. Calabac, it is I, Darkseid. I command you to listen to the Who's Who podcast. Uncover the powers and weaknesses of the Super Friends so that I may destroy them. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's Who? Booster Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, District and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, 
Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Available monthly at Aquaman Shrine, Firestorm Fan, and on iTunes and Stitcher as part of the Fire and Water podcast. Green Arrow number one, Hunter's Moon part one, February 1988. Written by Mike Grell, illustrated by Ed Hannigan and Dick Giordano. Lettered by John Costanza. Colored by Julia Laquamette. Edited by Mike Gold. The issue opens with a gang accosting a group in a park. Of course, Green Arrow is out on the night of a hunter's moon and takes care of all of the members of the gang in quick succession. Meanwhile, Lieutenant Jim Cameron is disgusted because after 18 years in prison, child slayer Al Muncy has been released on bond pending a retrial, and Cameron has to call Annie Green, who as a 10-year-old was the only child who survived Muncy's torturous rampage. At home, Dinah is still suffering mental anguish from the torture she experienced during the Longbow Hunters miniseries, so she and Oliver decide it's time to visit a psychologist, and they schedule an appointment with Dr. Annie Green. Following their appointment, they're still in the office when Dr. Green receives a package that panics her, and they hear the story of her torture at the hands of Al Muncie 18 years before, and how she escaped by jumping from a high window. Muncie is the heir of the Muncie Brewery Empire, following the death of his parents while he was in prison. Outside Muncie's mansion, Lieutenant Cameron has set up a police presence to ensure Muncie doesn't leave, as they fear he may kill Annie Green, since she is the only witness to the crimes he committed 18 years earlier. But that doesn't prevent Oliver from getting inside, where he confronts Muncie, warning him to stay away from Annie Green. Oliver fires an arrow in Muncie's direction, extinguishing a nearby candle, and telling Muncie that will be his only warning shot. As Oliver leaves, he gives Lieutenant Cameron the package that Annie Green received in the mail. It contained the button nose from the teddy bear belt she was wearing 18 years earlier when Muncie kidnapped her. Waiting in a tree outside Annie Green's home, Oliver sits patiently. A man dressed in camouflage and a mask is climbing the wall. Oliver says, You had your warning shot, and releases an arrow that hits the man squarely in the chest and he falls to the ground. Oliver rushes into the bushes to find the arrow shaft bent, but no sign of the man. This story is gripping. There's a sense of mystery and urgency as Green Arrow tries to protect Dr. Green and is puzzled by the clues. His heroic nature of quickly leaping to assist those in distress shines through. The issue features a great cover by Mike Grell, with a profile of Green Arrow above the Seattle cityscape, while another image of Green Arrow is drawing back his bow. While we sadly don't get Mike Grell drawing the interiors of the monthly Green Arrow comic, we do get occasional covers by him, and the interiors are nicely done by Ed Hannigan and Dick Giordano, who match Grell's style from the Longbow Hunters quite well. The opening fight with the gang in the park is particularly entertaining, since there's a staff involved, so we get a nice montage reminiscent of the fight between Robin Hood and Little John when they first meet. The silhouette profiles of Oliver and Dinah during a conversation are also nicely done, strengthening the mood of the scene, and the panel with that candle flame being hit by the arrow is terrific. It's a nice use of the light of the flame, and the arrow starts cutting across to the next panel. Very nice effect. And there is a great shot of Green Arrow waiting and hiding in the tree near the end of the issue. The perspective is good. The moon frames his head and torso, casting shadows on his face. And the backlighting brings out detailed silhouettes of the arrows, bow, and branches. Great atmosphere is captured in that panel. Green Arrow number 2, Hunter's Moon, Part 2, March 1988. Script, Mike Grell. Pencils, Ed Hannigan. Inks, Dick Giordano. And Frank McLaughlin. Letters by John Costanza. Colors by Julia Lacomet, editor Mike Gold. 
Green Arrow, Lieutenant Cameron, and several police officers rush into Al Muncy's mansion only to find him exercising in his private gym. He taunts them as they search his home and ridicules Lieutenant Cameron and the police force, confidently saying he's sure any evidence from his trial 18 years earlier will have been misplaced or misfiled. He's confident that he will win his appeal, but Cameron assures him that Annie Green's testimony will send him back to prison. As Oliver and the police search the grounds, Cameron tells Green Arrow that Al Muncy is just like his father Carl Muncy, who made a fortune on illegal alcohol during Prohibition. He even had beer running from the water taps in his house. They find a boot print, but from the depth can tell it was from a man weighing 210 pounds, but Muncy only weighs 180 pounds. Cameron begins to think that the intruder at Annie Green's house might have been just a coincidence, but Oliver knows better. He's figured it out. He and Lieutenant Cameron return to Muncy's mansion only to find Muncy is gone, even though the police have been watching constantly from the outside. Oliver points out a suit of armor and tells Cameron that when he was there earlier, there was a chainmail shirt with the armor. That is what Muncy wore that stopped his arrow, and it's also what added 30 pounds to his weight, creating the deeper boot prints. Next, Oliver goes to the beer taps in the house. It has to come from somewhere. He traces the pipe through the cabinets and into the floor and finds a switch that triggers a trap door. As Cameron races to Annie Green's house, Oliver climbs down and follows the tunnel until he climbs up into the adjacent brewery. Oliver opens a line, allowing beer to begin pouring onto the floor and then walks away. Instead of going back after Annie Green, Muncie has another plan. He abducts Lieutenant Cameron's daughter, Lisa, and when Cameron receives the news, Annie Green joins him as the two race to where Muncie used to take his victims. There they find Muncie with a gun to Lisa's head, and he is still wearing the chainmail shirt. A green arrow flies through the air, piercing Muncie's wrist and causing him to drop the gun. Lisa runs to her father, and Annie picks up the dropped gun and begins firing at Muncie. But when she misses, Muncie kicks her in the face and runs down the alley to his waiting car. He quickly drives back to the brewery, but Green Arrow is on his trail. Back at the brewery, Muncie makes it to a gated elevator that begins to lower. He taunts Green Arrow, saying there's another tunnel out, but by the time he finds it, Muncie is confident he will have made his escape. Just then, he realizes the elevator is descending into a pool of beer as all the tunnels below have been flooded due to Oliver's earlier actions. Green Arrow turns and walks away, leaving Muncie to drown as he calls out, Cheers! As a fan of mysteries, I really enjoyed seeing Green Arrow fit together the clues to reveal answers, find more evidence, and to know how to catch Muncie in the end. This issue has another gorgeous cover by Mike Grell, with Green Arrow in a rain-soaked alley, with his reflection in the pools of water on the street. The title page is nice, with a distant view of Green Arrow, just after he found the bent arrow, followed by a close-up of his face, showing all of his frustration and anger at not stopping the intruder from escaping. The great art of Ed Hannigan and Dick Giordano continues to be strong, and there is a particularly excellent full-page drawing of Green Arrow searching the tunnels under Muncie's mansion. There's another nice sequence later with a creative use of panels and empty panel space as the realization of the serious jeopardy of the girl's abduction is revealed. When you think of podcasts about religion, you probably think of this. But at least one religion podcast sounds more like this. I kick ass for the Lord! Dorkness to Light is a relatively geeky production in which Alan and Emily discuss topics of faith, religion, and spirituality. But we do so through the lens of pop culture, 
like movies, TV, and comic books, because we're nerds. Our primary focus will be on Christianity, because that's what we know best. But all religious content is on the table. Well, think about it, Scully, from vampirism to Catholicism. This is an occasional cast, to be recorded and released as the mood strikes, with topics ranging from in-depth reviews to personal rants about some small aspect of theology or church history, because we're theological nerds. If these topics interest you, check out dorknesstolight.blogspot.com for our more regular content. Or dorknesstolight.tumblr.com for our more irregular content. Memes and puns, mostly. My bad. Dorkness to light. Often irreverent, rarely sacrilegious. The Warlord Number 5, The Secret of Scataris, February-March 1977, written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Our story opens with Morgan and Tara continuing their journey to Shambhala. Passing through an area of steep granite cliffs, the two worry about the possibility of an ambush. But as they round a corner, it is hardly the ambush they expect. Instead, they walk upon a T-Rex in the middle of a mill. Angered at the interruption, the giant dinosaur turns upon them. Knowing they can't outrun it, they instead quickly climb the cliffs and enter a nearby cave. Inside the cave, Travis gasps in surprise upon seeing a giant monitor screen and banks of computers. Setting his helmet down on the controls, he inadvertently triggers the computer, and Morgan and Tara watch the history of Skataris unfold before them. The mighty and advanced continent of Atlantis was hit by a giant cataclysm, but the scientists had sufficient warning and sent expeditions out to find other lands to colonize. One group of ships found their way into the underground world of Skataris while searching the Arctic. While the land was inhabited by savage and ancient animals, it was also fertile and bountiful, so the group spread out in settlements throughout the land, building large advanced cities. However, as is the nature of humans, over the decades the various city-states turned on each other, and a horrible war followed, leaving much of the area exposed to radiation poisoning that over time devolved some of the former Atlanteans into beasts and lizardmen. While searching the cave, Morgan and Tara even find a file referencing Demos, who found the computer B-100-D blood. Engrossed in all that they are learning, Morgan and Tara don't notice the pack of wild wolf-like beasts that have found the cave. Moments later, they find themselves fighting for their lives, and while they are able to fend off the wild animals, they then find themselves inside another chamber that contains an underground subway train. Morgan theorizes the Atlanteans built an elaborate underground rail network to connect their main cities, and he tries to find a way to start the train so that he and Tara can ride to Shambhala in comfort. But instead, the train rockets off, leaving Tara behind and throwing Morgan against a wall, and without his helmet, he is knocked unconscious. Waking sometime later, he can tell the train has stopped and ventures outside to see where he is and is shocked to find he is back on the surface world with a full moon filling the sky above. As always, The Warlord is action-packed with a great mix of fantasy adventure and science fiction. Mike Grell shows off his ability to draw animals on the two-page title page with a towering T-Rex and a dead Triceratops as well as multiple horses. I've always enjoyed stories about Atlantis, and having the world of Skataris intertwined with Atlantis just makes it even more interesting. The underground subway train network looks very interesting as well, and reminds me of the underground trains used in the Genesis 2 movie of the 1970s that was made by Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry. I have to wonder if Mike Grell might have seen that movie. The Warlord, number six. Home is a four-letter word. April, May, 1977. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell, colored by Liz Berube. 
Travis Morgan has found himself in the mountains above the ancient Inca city of Machu Picchu. Still suffering from the head injury he received when the train rocketed out of Scataras, Morgan stumbles into a nearby tent where a beautiful red-headed woman is momentarily surprised before grabbing a nearby rifle and aiming it at him. Morgan finds himself surrounded by Professors Richard Beldings of Oxford University and Professor Tor Olfelson of the University of Stockholm, and learns the redhead is Professor Mariah Romanova of Moscow University. She is very distrustful of Morgan, knowing that he crashed while flying a spy plane over her homeland. I think Professor Alan Middleton was also there, but he was just off-panel. Morgan recounts his time in Skataras, and is surprised to learn the professors believe his stories. They've found other evidence that suggests the Inca Empire might be connected to Atlantis. Morgan thinks to ask the date, and learns it is April 16th. Since his plane went down in June, he figures he's been in Skataras almost a year, but then he learns it is 1977 and realizes nearly eight years have passed on the surface. Trying to adjust to the passage of time, Morgan accompanies the professors into a cavern where they found other references to Atlantis. There are hieroglyphs they've been unable to translate on the wall beside a carving of a huge cat-like creature, but after his time in Skataras, Morgan is able to read the inscriptions. It's the tomb of Tikal, a cat demon who betrayed the sun god and was banished from the rays of the sun. In their excitement, the professors plant small explosives and open the tomb to find what appears to be a giant statue of the cat demon. Just then, a helicopter arrives. It turns out that upon finding Morgan, the professors had radioed his location to the Air Force, assuming he would want to be rescued. Morgan knows that after being missing for eight years, the Air Force will assume he defected, especially if they find him with the Russian Mariah Romanova. Just then, a group of soldiers for hire appear above them with rifles in hand, as Morgan expected, but no one has noticed the rays of the sun slowly climbing up the statue of the cat demon. As the sun reaches the cat demon's eyes, it wakes and immediately attacks everyone in sight. Morgan is able to get above the creature and jumps upon its back and covers its eyes with his hands. The creature immediately turns back into stone and falls to the floor out of the sunlight. Morgan knows he needs to leave before the soldiers recover, and he'll need to block the underground train as well. But before he goes, he turns to Mariah and invites her to join him on a quest that would be any archaeologist's dream. Moments later, the two are rocketing through the tunnel in the underground train as the cave opening behind them explodes. Upon returning to Skataris, Morgan can't find any sign of Tara, even though he's only been gone one day. Then he notices his helmet on the computer panel, just where he left it. But now, it's covered in cobwebs, and he remembers how different the passage of time is between Skataris and the surface world, and he wonders how long he has been gone. I thoroughly love the tie-in to Machu Picchu. It seemed a perfect direction for the story to take. There's lots of adventure and action in this issue. It was fun to see the tomb of the cat demon, and the struggle to defeat the demon was exciting. We're given another strong and powerful woman with Mariah, and it's intriguing, though maybe a little surprising, that Morgan invites her to join him when the two certainly weren't getting along. However, he obviously recognizes someone with the right personality to survive and thrive in Skataris. Of course, readers will certainly find that to be the case in the issues ahead. As usual, the art is outstanding. There is so much variety in this sci-fi fantasy world. Mike Grill not only shows his talents in drawing diverse characters, but he also gets to include a wide variety of backgrounds, creatures, and objects. For example, just in this issue, we see a great illustration of the Andes Mountains, the Inca Ruins, a helicopter, a vicious cat demon, and the last panel ends with the warlord's iconic helmet with the feather wings on the side.
Next up, we want to share the feedback we've received since last episode. The first email we received in our Warlord Worlds inbox was from our friend and fellow fan, Brian Mulvey. He said you have another hit on your hands. You did Mike Grell very proud, and your fast-paced retelling of his three titles was nostalgic for me. I fondly recalled the Warlord origin story. When you got to Sable, which I had not read since the first publications, I was amazed how much of the story details I had forgotten. For instance, his writing successful children's books as a cover and massive source of income. And lastly, but not least, Mike's brilliant reboot of a very old character in The Green Arrow. My heartfelt thanks to you both for the entertaining fun you have with both podcasts. Ryan Daly was short and to the point with his initial feedback, which read, What took you so long? An appropriate comment since he knows we're big Mike Grell fans. As we mentioned earlier, he has several fun podcasts, including one centered around Black Canary. Jeff Messer said it was a great first episode. I really geeked out listening. He continued, I've been a student of Grell and Sable for 30 years, and I would also love to contribute something. So, we've spoken with Jeff and have some ideas on how he can contribute some thoughts to the show in the future. Joe Crawford said he is excited for us and the new podcast, saying it is awesome. He posted a photo of a John Sable book from his collection, saying it just moved to the top of his reading stack because of the show. And he recommended Mike Grell's two-issue Turok the Hunted series published by Valiant Comics. Shag Matthews really enjoyed our coverage and the stories we selected. He wrote, I'd love to hear even more of your commentary, as he is interested in our thoughts and feelings on the art and story. We agreed completely with Shag's comments and have expanded our commentaries with this second episode. We really value comments and ideas from listeners. It helps make the show much more fun and more like a conversation. Professor Allen did a sweet Friday Follows tweet about being thankful for both of our podcasts, Trekker Talk and Warlord Worlds. Clinton Robison over at the Coffee and Comics blog gave us a shout out for both of our shows and encouraged others to listen. And he also shared a photo of Showcase Presents the Warlord as posted by Jerry McCullen from TheEssentialShowcase.com. And we want to thank Chris Mounts, who named both our Trekker Talk and Warlord World shows as two of the best new podcasts of 2015. And Shag, Between the Pages, and several others were excited to see the photo of us seeing the new Star Wars movie with Mike Grell and asked us to share the story of how that happened. And that story will be coming up in just a moment. And we want to thank everyone who helped promote our show. All of the social media activity and other ways Mike Grell fans have spread the word has really worked. We've had a bigger response to the show than we could have imagined, and we really appreciate it. Before we start, let us say if we miss a name, please let us know and we'll correct it in the next episode. Also, forgive us if we've mispronounced a name. Just email us and let us know, and we'll correct that next episode as well. Andy Capellish, Ange of the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary, Between the Pages, Bill Lynn, Brian Mulvey, Chris Ivey, Chris Mounts, Clinton Robinson of the Coffee and Comics Blog, David Ace Gutierrez, Diablo Frank of the Idlehead of Diablo, Dr. G of Pulp to Pixel, Dread, FKA Jason, Frank Cooper, Gene Hendricks of the Hammer Strikes, Greg A, Gus Sabalios of the Mike Grell Facebook page, Jared West, Jeff Messer of the Geek Brain Popcast, Jim Romaldi, JLI Podcast, Waho Renato Mariano, Joe Crawford, Keith G. Baker, Kyle Benning of King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun, Martin Gray of the Too Dangerous Blog, Michael Bailey, Michael Suduro, Michael Wagner, Nate Arnelius, Patrick Oney, Patrick Scardo, Paul Carroll, Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Network, Rob Kelly of the Aquaman Shrine and the Film and Water Podcast, Rolled Spine Podcast, Ryan Daly of Flowers and Fishnets, Dead Botham Spies, and Secret Origins, Shag Matthews of Firestorm Fan and the Fire and Water Podcast, Sean Kelmer, Siskoid, Son of Cthulhu, 
Terry Ed and Nick Moore of Till Productions, which includes the Emerald Archer, Tim Wallace of Cord Industries, and Tui Sorensen. Before we wrap up, let's talk about Cherokee Comic Con. This story started back in October when we attended Asheville Comic Con, where Mike Grell was a guest. We've been lucky to see him several times in the last few years. He's always kind and friendly, and when there is time, he likes to chat and get to know his fans. So as we've had the opportunity to see him several times, he's gotten to know us over time and appreciates that we will go out and see him whenever he's at a con within driving distance. So when he saw us in Asheville in October, he mentioned that he was going to be in nearby Cherokee in December. He said it was the first year for the con, and it was in a rural area, so he was wanting to mention it to any area fans who might want to attend in the hopes of helping out the organizers. He didn't have to ask us twice, and we immediately planned on the trip. It was also interesting to learn more about the convention, which was being promoted as the first Comic-Con held on a Native American reservation. Also at the Asheville Con, we met another area Mike Grell fan named Jeff Messer, who was the moderator of the Q&A panel at Asheville with guests Mike Grell and Steve Rude. In the intervening months, we've gotten to know Jeff better through social media. He's an actor and playwright and does a daily radio talk show on 880 The Revolution. He also has a podcast called the Geek Brain Podcast and has had Mike Grell as a guest on multiple occasions. Mike also mentioned the Cherokee Con to Jeff, who also planned to attend. We've also learned that, like us, Jeff is fans of both Sherlock Holmes and Robin Hood, and he's written plays about both, so we've found we have lots in common. His plays include Sherlock Holmes Returns, or The Curse of the Bloody Heart, which was performed at the Parkway Playhouse in 2013, and Robin Hood, The Legend of Sherwood, that he wrote with Robert Akers, which won Best Production in 2000 at the Haywood Arts Regional Theater. Hopefully we'll get to see one of Jeff's plays in person in the future. But back to Cherokee Comic Con for now. It turns out that a week before the convention, Mike contacted Jeff because the lovely Mary, who often helps Mike out at his table at conventions, wasn't able to attend the Cherokee event. When we heard this, we also volunteered to help out any time that Jeff needed a break or if Mike or Jeff needed us to run any errands for them. The Cherokee Con had been scheduled to coincide with the release of the new Star Wars movie and had several Star Wars tie-in activities planned, including some gaming competitions. The convention was split up at multiple locations, with vendors at the local expo center, and as another tie-in to the new movie, the comic artist guests were actually located in a room at the local movie theater where Star Wars was being shown. So over the course of the weekend, there would be waves of attendees who would stop in either before or after seeing the new movie. There would be other times during a movie screening when things quieted down, and Mike enjoyed having Jeff, Darren, and me around to talk to during those slower times. On the first night, the con had arranged a private screening of the new Star Wars movie for the guests, and that included Jeff since he was working at Mike Grell's table. However, it turned out that prior to knowing he would be helping out Mike at his table, Jeff had bought advance tickets to the movie for him and his family at a different theater, so he wasn't going to be able to attend the private screening. So he asked Gary Ledford, who was the con organizer, if Darren and I could attend in his place since we were helping out Mike, and Gary readily agreed. Then Mike spoke up and invited us to sit with him at the screening. So before we even understood what was going on, we found ourselves attending a private screening on opening night of the new Star Wars movie, sitting beside comic legend Mike Grell. It was a wonderful series of good luck and blessings that we could have never imagined, and still find it difficult to believe it really happened. It was a truly unbelievable early Christmas gift from Mike Grell, Jeff Messer, and Gary Ledford, and we can't thank any of you enough. It was also fun to see that comic artist Stephen Scott, known for JLA, Batman, and many others, including one of our favorites, Indiana Jones, is also a Mike Grell fan, 
and he was just as excited as the two of us to be seeing Star Wars with Mike Grell. So there we were, sitting on one side of Mike Grell, and Stephen Scott was sitting on the other side, and we helped each other out by taking pictures of each other seeing the movie with Mike Grell. It was a great time. The rest of the weekend continued to be equally fun, with time to visit with Mike, Jeff, Stephen, and the other guests, as well as time to see some of the local sites in that beautiful mountainous area. While chatting with Stephen Scott, we also learned that he does a podcast as well called Pop Culture Palette, so be sure to check out that fun podcast as well. And check out the December 11th episode of Jeff Messer's Geek Brain Podcast for a fun interview with Stephen Scott. We got a couple of original sketches from Mike Grell and an amazing original Batman cover by Stephen Scott during the weekend. And we've posted them on the Warlord World's Facebook page and Twitter feeds where you can look at them. Mike also did a beautiful original drawing of Green Arrow and Black Canary for Jeff Messer to thank him for everything he did for him during the weekend. It was gorgeous and it was very well deserved. And Mike also did an extra drawing as a thank you to us for helping out during the weekend as well. To do that drawing, Mike held a gold pen in his right hand and a black pen in his left hand. Then moving both hands simultaneously like a mirror image reflection, he created a drawing of Green Arrow. It was stunning to see, and using the two pens really helps illustrate what he did. That drawing is also on our Facebook page and Twitter feeds. We would really like to hear your thoughts about the show and share your comments in a future episode. So before we go, we want to provide our contact information. You can reach us at warlordworlds at gmail.com, and you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at Warlord Worlds. Also, if you like the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. It's a great way to help get the show noticed and hopefully attract more listeners. And please consider subscribing to the show so you always know when there's a new episode. You may also enjoy our other podcast called Trekker Talk about 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair by Ron Randall. In our opinions, Mike Grell and Ron Randall are master storytellers and artists, and we're always happy to talk about their work and hear what others have to say. Thanks for listening, and we hope you will come back next month for another new episode of Warlord Worlds. Warlord Worlds is not affiliated with DC Comics or Mike Grell. The views expressed on the show are solely ours. Music is taken from the album Royalty-Free Instrumental Music for Movies and Websites. Sound effects are taken from the album's Sound Effects Library, Volume 1, Weapons Sound Effects, Number 1 Sound Effects for Movies, TV, and Websites, Ultimate Transportation Sound Effects, Archery Sound Effects, and Ultimate Sound Effects Collection. We make no money from this podcast, and no copyright infringement is intended. Mm-hmm.